This is Cal Newport, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 735-735 or text Radio Free to 33444 if you're on your phone and in the United States. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes of all time sent right to your email inbox. You can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 735 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. This week, we're talking to Cal Newport. Cal is the author of two highly influential books in my life and in my career. Um, they're fantastic. They're evidence-based, but they are littered with practical examples. They are So Good They Can't Ignore You, possibly the best career advice book that I have read. And then the answer to that book, Deep Work, which is all about how to get focus, eliminate distractions, how to focus in and do the work that actually creates value for your career, for your organization, and for the people around you. I was looking forward to this interview for a long time, and it did not disappoint. Cal has some amazing insights to share with you. One of my favorite is the idea of productive meditation. This is a tactic that Cal outlines in deep work that I went ahead and made into a little cheat sheet, and so that is available on the show notes page as well, davidberkus.com slash 735, how to use productive meditation to get more focus, train your brain to focus more on these deep work activities. Cal actually describes it as like pull-ups, but for your brain, which I think is a really great analogy because as I've tried it, it has definitely stretched my ability to focus in. So without further ado, again, our interview with Cal Newport on being so good they can't ignore you and getting there through doing deep work. So who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm Cal Newport. I'm a uh, computer science professor at Georgetown University, but I also write books and I, I should say, what don't you do in, in that regard? Um, actually, there's a lot of things you don't do, and that's part of deep work. But what I, what I love about, I mean, I've been following your, your work. I followed your blog since before So Good They Can't Ignore You. I'm ashamed to admit So Good was the first book of yours I read. Um, but I really, really loved it. I actually really loved the Steve Martin's autobiography, too. So hence why I was uh, immediately attracted to that book. And I mean, I've been following you on the blog, et cetera, because I think you started started blogging maybe right around when I started grad school. And so it wasn't, I, I know your first couple of books were geared more at high school and, and undergrad college kids, but I found them to be um, super, super useful. And one skill I, I wanted to have you on, cause we have a lot of um, ideas that are similar. We are, we're, we're singing the same anthem, which is awesome. Um, and, and we'll get to those in a little bit, but the first that began, I, I realized in reading deep work that while we're singing the same anthem about email and about the travesties of open office, et cetera, you are far better at doing that deep work thing than I am. So I, I mean, I guess I, I'm coming to this realization and now I'm sitting at the, at the feet of a master of this. How did you start on this journey and learn to kind of tune out the distractions and really focus in on getting the maximum return of your time? How did, how did you start learning how to work deeply? Well, I think the advantage I have in this space is that I come from this unusual intersection, you know, between two different worlds. So I'm, I'm writing sort of in the business 
business advice development type space, yet my day job is as a theoretical computer scientist. So I can take ideas from that world or things I've been exposed to in that world and then bring them over to the broader business world. So deep work, the, the ability to concentrate very intensely, this is something that in the rarefied world of theoretical computer science, this very niche, very narrow world, is clearly talked about and discussed as a tier one skill. I mean, if you're going to solve theorems for a living, that's by far the most important skill you have. So I grew up as a, you know, sort of my professional life, I grew up surrounded by deep work being something that was really important and that you respected in other people and that you honed and developed and it was at the core of your craft. And so to me, it's very comfortable. And then when I looked around broader as a business writer into the broader world of, of the business knowledge work landscape out there, I was surprised by how much it was being underappreciated. Hmm. And but I, it's interesting because I, I see it's definitely something that's underappreciated. I think this that's a longstanding symptom of our our older methodology of assuming that presence means productivity, right? So you're being watched by the boss, so you've got to look busy, even if you're if you're you're I mean doing deep work a lot of times sitting back and really thinking about it. Uh, I think at one point actually you call I loved this term the productive meditation thing. I want to talk about that in, in a little bit. But doing that kind of work doesn't seem productive to the average manager who's just checking to see when you reply to emails and when you're in the office, et cetera, and extrapolating out productivity. At the same time, though, do you feel like we're at the beginning? I feel like we're at the beginning of a trend towards the recognition that that deep work is what actually matters and and sort of helping more and more employees be able to do that. Yeah, I think that transition is inevitable. And it's useful, I think, when considering the knowledge economy is in remembering how new it is, relatively speaking. And if you go back, as I've done recently, and look at, for example, the early history of the Industrial Revolution, and you look at that through a lens of analogy to what's going on in knowledge work, you see it took a long time to figure out, okay, how do we do industrial manufacturing right? I think this is exactly what's happening with knowledge work. It's very new, especially knowledge work in an age of digital communications, which is 20, 25 years old. That's nothing in business history, uh, in, the, in the history of new industry. So we don't really know yet what's the right way to do this. And I think that's what's actually exciting about this moment is that we're just in these early stages of figuring out what's important, what's not important, what practices should we focus on, what practices should we not. So this this idea that you're just in an office, virtual or otherwise, and just trying to show busyness and answering emails quickly, we're going to look back at that 20 years from now and say, yeah, that was kind of embarrassing. I mean, we hadn't figured it out yet. We hadn't figured out how to take this capital investment we're making in people's brains and get out of them sustainable long-term use as well as really high results. So we're going to see a lot of major shifts. That's my prediction. And an increasing identification and focus on concentration as a tier one skill is going to be one of them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I see uh, this was the trend that I saw in, in wanting to write uh, my book under new management was this idea that the rules of how we're, we're leading and managing organizations were written for an industrial time. You know, and there was a time pre-Frederick Taylor when we really had no idea how to manage a factory. And we look pre and post Frederick Taylor and we go, wow, it's clear we didn't know what we're doing. And I think we're in the same capacity there. I mean, Dilbert and Office Space and The Office, these probably wouldn't be funny if it weren't for the mismatch between how to manage uh, knowledge workers and how to manage things where, you know, as you say, deep work becomes a tier one skill. 
Um, and we're, but instead we're borrowing from kind of an old outdated playbook. But I mean, I, like I said, I think we're making progress in that regard. One of the, the things where, um, this first came up on my radar is you've got a great piece, uh, on the HBR site about a modest proposal, you know, let's, let's ban email, let's get rid of email. And there are companies that are actually doing that, but it's interesting I've, I've learned as I go around and travel um, and talk about the companies that are drastically reducing email connectivity and the benefits of it, et cetera, I still get some resistance and, and kind of, I know how I respond to it, but I, I guess I want to ask you, how do you respond to people that say like, no, there's, there's no way you can have my Blackberry. You can't have my smartphone. I won't be able to work, et cetera. Yeah. The problem here with email is you have to look beneath the, the technology itself is not that interesting to me. I mean, it's, it's a set of protocols for doing asynchronous messaging with universal addressing. Okay, that's like a nice set of networking protocols. What's important is not the tool, it's the underlying workflow that this tool helped enable and this tool helps fuel. So this is really the, the key issue. If you don't get to the underlying workflow that people are using email to enable, you're never going to fix the problem. That if you just focus on, hey, you should use your email or email inbox less without changing the workflow that demands constant messaging, then you're not going to fix anything. So I call the underlying workflow that sort of emerged in a non-directed, non-designed way, I call it the hyperactive hive mind. And it's a workflow that's based on this notion that we don't want a lot of processes in place. We don't want a lot of logistical overhead. The way our knowledge organization is going to handle things is that we're going to give an inbox to every person associated to their name and we just message back and forth. And we'll have this sort of ongoing conversation that happens throughout the day, and we can just kind of be flexible and figure things out on the fly. And, and this way, we don't we can avoid a lot of logistical overhead. Uh, I can hire you, give you an email address, and you can just jump right in the fray. And this is the dominant workflow, I think, that knowledge workers are doing today. This hyperactive hive mind worked everything out in an ad hoc, ongoing conversation. And my argument in that HBR piece is that though this is really convenient, it's disastrously unproductive. It's leaving disastrous amounts of uh, value on the table and that we have to evolve past it and come up with new workflows. And if we just say, use email less, it's never going to work because as long as the underlying workflow is this hyperactive hive mind, if you tell people to check email less or to wait till noon to check email or to batch their email to just once a day, it's going to be destined for fail because the underlying workflow depends on constant communication and it's really going to make them worse at their job. So I think we do need to eliminate email, but to do that, we have to get to the deeper root, which is the underlying workflow we use to run knowledge economy workplaces. So what, um, I mean, what do you think would be a good, uh, a good protocol to replace it through. What do you think is a, the ideal workflow? I mean, I know how you sort of you structure your work um, individually because I, I got to read about it in deep work, but I mean, you, you work in a, in a department, you've got what would definitely be a team. How would you uh, advise we revise that workflow in order to make it more productive? Yeah, it's, it's a question I'm working on. And I should emphasize it's also, um, it's somewhat orthogonal to, for example, like the skill of deep work, which is valuable, going to produce value, whether or not, you know, your company uses email. Um, but I, th I think the key is not to focus on like, well, what communication technology would I use instead of email, which is the mistake that a lot of people make when they, when they tackle this problem. They say, oh, so what would the technology be instead? Would I use Slack? Which is not the right way to think about it. The question is, what workflow would we use to replace the hyperactive hive mind? What workflow would we design that's not just based off of an ongoing 
ad hoc conversation. So a lot of uh, unplanned person-to-person messaging is not really necessary to, to move it forward. And there's no one-size-fits-all answer, but I think what it comes back to is exactly what we saw in the Industrial Revolution, which is process engineering. Okay, what are the processes in our company? What is it that you can do to produce value? Then let us build processes for you around that, that optimize the amount of value you produce and make the job as sustainable and you know satisfying as possible. And in terms of how information comes into that process and what format it comes out of that process, that'll be process specific. And so how I interact with, the, with different people might be different than how you interact with people depending on what we do for the company. And we move away from this more generic approach of just everyone is on essentially one giant party call. And through unstructured conversation, we try to figure all, schedule everything, figure everything, check up on everything, because that just doesn't work with our brain. Hmm. No, I totally agree with you. Like I said, one of the reasons I was so attracted to the column, but also to the book is is we're singing a very similar song. I'm curious, though, to hear, and this is one I definitely think you do better than me. Um, I've managed to kind of adopt a two device strategy. So while I'm still kind of plugged into a lot of different emails while I'm in work mode, I actually switch my phone for an iPad that doesn't have email and social media and that kind of stuff on it. Um, in order to transition out of kind of work mode. But I'm curious to see what your advice to the individual person who's sort of like, okay, I hear this, uh, but I can't unplug entirely. I'm not, I don't work in the IT department of my company. And even if I did, they'd probably fire me for for doing what you say. Um, but as an individual, what can I do to push back against this and preserve um, some time to have a better workflow? Right, and this is a good question because you know what I was just talking about there in terms of the underlying workflow of your organization and, and, and how to transform it, that's all big think issues. And this is stuff that has to happen at sort of the industry level. So this is something that an individual you know, employee or, or sole entrepreneur can't just unilaterally do. So your question's key. It's saying, okay, so maybe in the future there will be this inevitable shift and we'll get away from the hyperactive hive mind. But how do I today, in a hyperactive hive mind style organization, be more effective and take advantage of things like deep work. And here would be my three, the three things I would suggest. Uh, first, the terminology deep work is useful because it segregates that particular activity from everything else. So if you recognize deep work is when you're focusing on something for a long period of time without distraction and it's cognitively demanding. Uh, this, is what, this is the state in which you can quickly master complicated new things. This is the state where you're going to produce at orders of magnitude higher levels of productivity and quality than more distracted, fractured workflows. So that's deep work. Uh, Everything else we can call shallow work. And I don't mean that to be pejorative. It's just shallow in the sense of not deep work. Um, Even recognizing that those are two different things is a huge step in how you think about your day and how you plan your day. It means saying, I was busy today, is no longer a very meaningful statement. Because that tells you nothing about, well, how much deep work did I do? Because the way to think about it is it's like shallow work is what prevents you from being fired. Uh, deep work is what gets you promoted. And so the right question then, so this is kind of the second idea, the right question to be asking is what's my deep to shallow work ratio? Or how much deep work did I do this, this week versus shallow work? And once you start thinking like that, then you start building these flows that are that are able to you know keep you on top of the shallow stuff that's demanded by your particular company or workflow, but still do at a regular basis the type of deep stuff that's really going to move the needle, make you better at what you do, produce the type of star output that's going to help you move ahead. Hmm. 
I think one of the interesting things I saw in, in the book too, again, is this idea that, um, and I think open offices is trained as just like um, smartphones train us for this, but that we're really not trained to focus in on this deep work. And, you know, you actually advocated boredom and embracing boredom and pulling, sort of pulling away from the stimulus, even if we're not trying to do deep work, has value because it allows us to focus more. Um, what, I mean, what happened? How did we get here? Yeah. And it's, 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 uh, I think it's a good point. Deep work is not natural. I mean, it's, it's hard. Um, we're not wired for it in the sense that it, it eats up a lot of cognitive energy. So our brain tries not to do it if we can get away with it because it's, we don't like to expend energy if we don't have to. That's, that's a survival skill back from our, our sort of evolutionary history. On the other hand, it's incredibly valuable, right? It's a, you know, factor two multiplier on, on your output. Um, so our brains are, are not wired to be in states naturally of deep concentration. So, you know, of course we're going to be more drawn to a workday that's built around lots of little shallow hits of information, any of which could possibly be good or reinforcing or novel, uh, social media, back to my inbox, let me post a quick thing here, let me go back to my inbox, jump to this meeting while looking at my email. That's much more satisfying to our brain because it gives us these little pops, these little pops of dopamine and oh, that was kind of interesting and this could be interesting. And it keeps you away from, oh wait, I have to concentrate hard for three hours. That's something that your brain, just like if you said, I need to go run for three hours, your brain's going to say, if we can get away from doing that or get out of doing that, I'm going to try to. So it's, it's not an easy battle. And that's very important, I think, to recognize. Hmm. I think too, this is what is at the core of people's feeling like, an, an open office environment, for example, is so productive is that it, you're getting those little hits of dopamine, right? You're working on something and then all of a sudden you see a friend of yours who also works at the office. You have a brief little conversation, then you get back to work. And at, at a deeper level, you don't see the effect that that's having on your productivity because you're kind of swimming in dopamine from all these different interactions. Now, now certainly that's much more likely to be the case if you're an extrovert than an introvert. But again, it, these are still largely interactions and people and things that you like. That's why you're allowing yourself to be distracted with them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And so, you know, even if you're an introvert and maybe don't like having lots of spontaneous conversations, you're still probably, if you're the first thing you do is open up an email inbox and that's the main thing you run your day out of, it's the same type of, of, of dopamine hit of busyness and things are going on, which is why I, you know, I try to keep emphasizing from different levels. It's the, the hard concentration that pushes your skills to your limit, that makes you better and produces the best stuff you're capable of producing. That's really the only stuff that moves the needle. I mean, that's really the only type of activity that the market really values. And one of the ways I try to get at that when, when trying to emphasize this point is to think about how replicable is an activity. So essentially, if what you're doing at the moment would be easily replicatable by sort of any bright recent college graduate, then by definition, it's not going to be valued much by the market. And most shallow work satisfies that that property. I mean, just moving messages back and forth in an inbox, doing social media posting. I mean, we like to tell ourselves that somehow there's going to be these serendipitous opportunities that happen. It's going to open up all these things. But the marketplace actually really doesn't value much, for example, you know, a lot of social media use because it's easily replicatable. PowerPoint slides, attending meetings, having these chats, all of that's easily replicatable activities. It just doesn't produce much uh, value in the marketplace. But when you're pushing your hard-won skills to the limit and improving the hard-won skills, that's when you're doing the type of thing that actually moves the needle, that creates value, that makes you unambiguously too good to be ignored, that opens up new opportunities, that moves you ahead. So I, I try to reshift people into thinking about 
anything that's not deep work as in some sense more of like a necessary evil. Not evil, but all right, we got to keep the, the the trains moving on time. You know, we got there's logistics, there's paperwork that has to be done. But where you get excited, where you find your pride in a day well worked, where you find your motivation for your job is in the deep efforts. So is deep work then the prequel to so good they can't ignore you? I know, I mean, it came out afterwards, but I feel like deep work is the key to actually achieving the career um, leverage of being so good they can't ignore you. Yeah, well, I think it's a sequel. I mean, so so good they can't ignore you. Said, hey, let's go study people who love who love what they do. How did they get there? Oh, it turns out they didn't have a pre-existing passion for the most part. They tended to have their passion grow over time. So how did they grow passion over time? Oh, they got really good at valuable things, and that creates all these great effects. That was kind of that book. So a lot of people came up after that and said, great, I buy it. But kind of the really important question is, then how do I get really good at things that are important? You know, because that's the foundation of passion. So uh, deep work in some sense is, a, is my answer. You know, yeah, okay, deep work, not only is it intrinsically satisfying, but it creates the type of unambiguous value that allows you, as I documented in my previous book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, to cultivate a life of, uh, a working life of real passion. This is where passion and meaning and satisfaction, it's, it doesn't come from matching your job to some pre-existing inclination. Uh, that's not the key to loving your work. Like, oh, I was wired to be a paleontologist. So now that I'm a paleontologist, I love my job. That's not how it works for the most part. Uh, passion comes later and almost always is built on a foundation of craftsmanship. And, and so deep work is basically an instruction manual for how to do that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and in in line with that idea of the instruction manual, um, I I guess my our, our last kind of question around the book and around these concepts would be how to how to get started. I, I think I know the answer. I've benefited a ton from productive meditation. So um, even if that's not the answer, let us know real quick what that is because I love it. But if not, like what advice you're like? Okay, I I bought so good they can't ignore you. I bought into that idea. So now we have deep work. Cool, I buy it. How do I get started training myself to get better at doing deep work? Right. So, well, productive meditation, <laughs> just to get that out. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's two questions in one. I apologize. Well, Be me yeah. being a bad host, but sorry. I love talking about product, productive meditation. That's actually a technique for uh, increasing your ability to concentrate. Uh, and what you do is you simply go for a walk and you hold a professional problem in your head and you try to make progress on that professional problem just in your head as you walk. And just like with mindfulness meditation, if you notice your attention has wandered away from the problem you're trying to solve and into other things, you just notice it and bring your attention back to the problem. Say, so, okay, here it is. Let me try to go deeper. And it's like pull-ups for your brain. It's really hard at first. And then as you do more and more of it, you find it easier and easier to think deeper thoughts and for longer periods of time. So it's great training. But that underscores, I think, my big answer to your question. So how do you make deep work an important part of your life? Uh, there's two, uh, two sides to that, right? I mean, so the, the one side is you have to recognize that deep work is a trained ability. And this is a really important distinction that a lot of people miss, which is people think about focusing like a habit, like brushing their teeth, something, oh, of course I know how to focus. I just need to find more time to do it. But the reality is focusing is a skill. It's much more like playing the guitar. So it's something that if you haven't practiced, you're not going to be very good at. Uh, so if you're going to cultivate a deep work habit in your work life, the first thing you have to do is actually 
hone your ability to work deeply. In other words, hone your ability to concentrate at a high level of intensity. Because if you haven't done this training, even if I lock you away in a Faraday cage and you can't receive any electromagnetic signals and you're stuck in there for five hours, you're not going to produce much of value if your mind is not trained to, to, to concentrate intensely. Uh, so there's various things you can do to, to, to train yourself to be better at concentration. And then the other types of things you have to do is how do you get that into your workday? So once you've honed this ability, how do you make sure that you regularly have a lot of time to do deep work? You need both sides. You have to do both of those things if you're going to succeed at embracing the type of deep life, uh, which as I document can be sort of orders of magnitude, more production and more value in what you put out. Mm. No, that's a great start and a, and a great place to start. The The books, again, if you're looking for a great place to start, a deep work and so good they can't ignore you. Um, Cal, we, uh, this is the point in the show where we transition from the books to talk about you and ask you five questions that we ask all of our guests. So you ready? Sure. So the first one, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, it's probably not surprising since I titled the book after it. Uh, because, so <laughs> it, I wondered it, it wasn't given directly to me, but it was advice that Steve Martin was giving, uh, to his audience in general. This was in a Charlie Rose interview when they asked, what's your advice to aspiring entertainers? And he said, uh, people don't like to hear it, but what you should do is be so good they can't ignore you. If you do that, good things will come. And that had been transformative to the way I thought about my life. It's, uh, it's not about the hacks. It's not about having the right systems. It's not about necessarily cultivating your network to be just the right mix of, of primary and secondary links. It all comes down ultimately to be so good at what you do that you can't be ignored. If you do that, good things will come. And that's been sort of transformative to me. Totally. And deep work will get you there. Now, um, I'm really actually interested in asking you this question. I mean, I, I enjoy asking it for all guests, but in particular you, given our, our topic, what's an average day look like for you? Well, so I have different types of days. Um, so if you look at my, my calendar in an academic semester, like right now, um, there's two days a week when I'm teaching. And so what I do with those two days, I teach one class in each of those days. Those are my days in which I'm going to schedule all my meetings. Uh, you and I, it's, it's not surprising we're recording this interview on a Tuesday because Tuesday and Thursdays are, are my days. I, it's, I'll do podcasts, I'll do meetings, I'll do phone calls. Those are the days for uh, interaction and tasks, those type of things. That frees up the other days. So I know when I'm scheduling, hey, can you do a call? Can you hop on a call? Can you do a meeting? I know schedule it on my course days, schedule my course days. That leaves other days open. Uh, so I like to take two out of the other three to be deep work days. And a good deep work day for me is one in which I'm going to have my first interaction with a computer network probably in the late afternoon. And so, you know, from when I wake up until the late afternoon, I haven't seen an email. Um, I haven't seen I haven't had a meeting, haven't had a call. I would say I haven't been on social media, but I don't have social media accounts, so that, that's true of every day. <laughs> uh, and and the, the whole day up to that point is doing deep work. And what that means for me depends on what I'm working on. But a lot of times if I'm trying to solve something or I'm trying to work on a book chapter, I'm going to be on foot probably in the woods. of a couple different forested areas I walk in, I think better in the woods. Or I'm going to be at a computer screen, you know, writing up my results or trying to, trying to write up or carefully formalize, you know, a book chapter or mathematics proof. And so those are the deep days. So I'm, I'm either, it's bimodal. I mean, I'm either wall to wall, running from thing to thing, meetings on the phone, or I'm in the woods. <laughs> and for me, that's, that's what works. You know, uh, if, if I'm going to do one thing, I'm going to do it all in. Hmm. What are you reading right now? Well, I, I have the habit of, you know, liking to read half dozen or more 
book simultaneously, but I'll tell you what, what I just bought on Saturday. I'm excited about. I found that a used bookstore, uh, Simon Schuster published in 1956, this four volume set, the world of mathematics or the history of mathematics, uh, this great leather-bound set that has infinite summations in a in a triangular on the spines. It looks really cool, but it's fantastic. It's uh, the main ideas in mathematics. The essays are written for the most part by the actual mathematicians themselves, um, and I'm loving it. So, as you can tell, I'm a math geek. Yeah, no, I mean that's cool. That's that's we had um, Tim Sullivan, who's the editor of uh, books for HBR, but also an author himself, talk about how he got inspired to write his latest book because he was reading very, you know, a very handsome collection of the most influential economics papers of the day. And, and again, it's sort of like, I think we're all a little nerdy. Um, that, that's one of the things that we, we actually love about the show is we straddle the line between kind of the research and the practical, trying to take more from the ivory tower and bring it to the corner office. So never, never be ashamed to be nerdy on this show for sure. What do you believe that most people don't? Uh, Again, maybe not surprising going back to my books. <laughs> um, well, there's a lot of things, but the thing that seems to annoy or upset people the most, I'll give two things. I, I upset people a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that I'm having a hard time choosing one is maybe a sign that I need to change my ways. Uh, here are the two things that I say most that I think upset people the most. One, follow your passion is bad advice. And two, almost everyone should not be on social media. And yeah, I'm totally fine with, uh, with both of those, not from the stance that like, I mean, I I have my social media accounts and I like them and, or am addicted to them. Um, but it kind of, one of the reasons I love asking this question is it harkens back to, I think it's an Abraham Lincoln quote about show me a man who has no enemies and I'll show you a man who has no resolve, who's never taken a stand for anything. So it's totally cool to be annoying people. It means you've taken a stand for something. Yeah, that social social media stands a lonely one, I can say. And that's still (laughs) a... The only millennial in like the country that has never had a Facebook account, but hey, it turns out you still you still survive. Yeah, it's amazing that you're still alive. No, I'm just I'm yeah. totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. I haven't had a friend in ten years, but uh. <laughs> well, you haven't had a friend in quotes, right? And yeah. I, I think that's the big deal. It's just because they're your friend in quotes on Facebook. They're not a real friend. You probably have much deeper relationships with the friend, the the real life friends that you have. Although I bet most of them have Facebook accounts and are wondering why you're not on there. Uh, yeah, that, that that's that. I think everyone qualifies for that. Has a Facebook account at this yeah. point. I think there's like what seven people left in the world at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Totally. So um, the the title of our show is Radio Free Leader, and so our last question is is a simple but a complicated one. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Well, at least what I try to embrace is this notion of of uh, be willing to go to first principles. So, so use what Lincoln called purposive intelligence, where you, you, you try to put your mind to work to, to, for a purpose to get down to what are the first principles, and then uh, be willing to build back up from those principles. And where you end up, where you build up from those principles, might end up being a place that, that puts you out on, on a limb. And you might be, you know, the only millennial not using Facebook or saying, why are we telling people they should follow your passion? What's our evidence that works? These type of things. Uh, but that's what actually I think leads to to change that matters, right? Otherwise, you're just playing around with, you know, you're, you're rearranging the deck chairs. You're, you're, you're playing around with what's already going on and trying to make it a little more efficient or comment on the side. But real change comes from typically you go back to first principles, maybe you redefine those first principles, you build up and where you end up, that could be real far from where you started, but you have the confidence because you built that foundation from scratch to say, I'm comfortable being out here by myself because I know how I got here. That's good. That's really good. 
So the, the books, again, So Good They Can't Ignore You and Deep Work are the two we talked about, though Cal has many, many more. So check them out. He may not be on social media, but he's on the interwebs all over. You can't miss him. Type his name into, into Google and you will find it. And I highly encourage you start with, uh, well, actually start with one or the other because you'll end up wanting to read the other one anyway. So Cal, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. 